0: A daughter needs a dad to be the standard against which she will judge all men. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Guys, y'all need to buckle up because we are going on a wild ride for the next two episodes. We are diving deep with singer, songwriter, recovering addict, former sex worker, but most importantly, my former boarding school classmate, Lucy Turchin. And this story is juicy. It is raw. It is vulnerable. But trigger warning. uh, Her story does include being sex trafficked as a teenager, as well as working in the sex industry for many years. So nothing super graphic or violent, but just want to give you a heads up and a trigger warning. So I talked about this boarding school in the fourth episode of the pod. Now, this was a quote unquote character building school, aka a school for troubled teens run by a bunch of people who had no business running a school for troubled teens. But in all honesty, Lucy and I were actually texting about this, how we're grateful that we got sent there. Yes, it was traumatic, uh, but it didn't really leave any permanent damage. And we can sure as hell laugh about it today, as opposed to some other therapeutic boarding schools that some kids get sent to that are truly horrific, like, for example, the one that that Paris Hilton got sent to. So, yes, ours was not great. But um, like I said, I don't think it left any permanent damage on either one of us. So you're going to get to hear Lucy's story of what led her to being sent to the school, But I want to remind you of my story, of what led me to being sent to the school. Now, it is a much milder story than Lucy's, as you'll soon hear. But it is still a gem of a story. It is the story of the internal coin purse. So as soon as my parents stopped drug testing me, I started smoking pot again on a daily basis, and I actually managed to get away with it for almost an entire year until the summer between ninth and 10th grade when I had my first incident with the law. I was hanging out with my friend Tyler. Now, I had met Tyler at the outpatient rehab that I had gone to after I got out of inpatient. So we're in Tyler's car and we had just bought weed and we get pulled over by the police. Unbeknownst to us, they had seen the transaction go down. They saw the guy come up to the car And then they saw us drive away. So the cop asked us if we have any drugs in the car, which of course we said no. And then he tells us he will be searching the car. But then there was this five minute period of time where we were left alone in the car when he took Tyler's license and registration back to the cop car. And I said to her, I said, we have to eat this weed. And this weed was some shitty ass swag weed. It was super dry. There were lots of stems and seeds, and there was no liquid in the car, no water, nothing. When I tell you how difficult it was to get this dry ass weed down my mouth, I mean, it took me at least three minutes to eat one of the dime bags. And Tyler was refusing to eat the other fucking bag. And there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to eat the second one before the cop got back to the car. So what did I do? Well, I took that other bag and I stuck it up my vagina. Yes, I stuck it up my vagina. And this was not the first time that I had done that. Anytime I traveled, anytime I flew with weed, that's Where I put it. It's a nice little internal coin purse. (laughs) So I just shoved that thing up there. And unfortunately, we still got arrested for possession of drug paraphernalia because we didn't realize that there was a roach. The end of a blunt was in an empty cigarette box in the glove compartment. So we got busted for that. But thankfully, I did get away with that weed in my internal coin purse. And instead of my parents sending me to rehab again, they sent me to a boarding school in Maine. So I also want to tell you guys that I reached out to to this girl in the story too, Tyler. I saw on my Facebook that she recently got accepted into a PhD program for theology. So I'm pretty sure that that means hopefully that she got her shit together. So I reached out to her too. And I'd love to do these blasts from the past episodes. You know, I was thinking about all of the kids, all the people that I, you know, crossed paths with. So from eighth grade through 12th grade, I was sent to one inpatient rehab, one boarding school. And about probably four or five outpatient adolescent rehabs. And I just think about how many of those people are probably dead or not doing so great. So I just feel extremely grateful that I got to be one of the lucky ones. And it was so miserable. I hated all of that. But if you just told me in that moment, Andrea, don't worry, it's going to provide you with a lot of wonderful content one day. But I will say from talking to Lucy, I had this like weird sense of just connectedness, you know, kind of just seeing the the greater picture of things and just kind of seeing how the stars always align and that there is kind of a greater purpose and meaning behind everything that um, that happens in our lives. And. As much as I hated being sent to that school and it was miserable, yes, it provided me with some wonderful content. But, you know, I also got to cross paths with somebody like Lucy, who now, 15 years later, you know, we both get to share our stories of, of recovery. And so that is just such a beautiful thing. And I just feel so grateful for these opportunities. So Lucy and I's stories are very different. Um, but I was thinking about what are the things that kind of tie us together one of which being that we were both kind of labeled the identified patients slash scapegoats of our family. And what I want to say about this is that, you know, being scapegoated, being deemed the identified patient, you know, this isn't some sort of a malicious act on behalf of our parents. Think that both of our parents were doing what they thought was best. The issue with it is that often... The The problem gets put upon one person when in all actuality, the problem is indicative of something much, much larger, a dysfunctional family system. And so then what happens is all of the emphasis and the focus gets put on the scapegoat or the identified patient and the underlying issues of what caused this child to act this way are not addressed. And in turn, the message becomes ingrained in the identified patient, in the scapegoat, that they are the problem when in fact uh, they are just a symptom of a much greater issue. And of course, that results in a lot of toxic shame. And then the other commonality between Lucy and I's childhood stories is... You know, having a emotionally unavailable father and how this resulted in us being attracted to emotionally unavailable men and how this resulted in us becoming codependent and having this deep fear of abandonment and this deep, deep desire to be loved. You know, Lucy had a dad who was not interested in in being a father, uh, whereas I don't feel like that was the case with my dad. I do feel like he was interested in being a father, And he was a wonderful father in many respects. However, he was not emotionally present for me, emotionally available for me at all times. And I never felt unconditionally loved. I felt like love was tied to either academic or athletic achievements or to my mother's alcoholism. That's when I felt like he was most available to me was when my mom was drunk and unavailable to him. In those moments when he was emotionally present, available to me, I was no longer in the role of a daughter, but more so as a, a surrogate spouse or a friend or an emotional confidant. I was reading this article about a relationship between a father and a daughter, and it says, in raising a daughter, girls want to know four things. One, are we in a relationship? Two, what is the nature of the relationship? Three, who am I within the relationship? And four, what is necessary to maintain connection within the relationship? How dad helps his daughter actively and passively to answer these questions will provide insights into the nature of her every male relationship. So in the case with my dad, number one, are we in a relationship? Yes. Two, what is the nature of our relationship? Well, sometimes it was great. (laughs) sometimes it was not so great three who am i within the relationship well that also changed you know sometimes i was the kid and and other times i was as i said the the surrogate spouse or the surrogate confidant and for what is necessary to maintain connection within the relationship well my mother's alcoholism what what was what was necessary to maintain connection on an intimate and emotional level with my father so, how shocking that I then found myself attracted to emotionally unavailable alcoholic men. Ugh, that is some heavy shit, y'all, and uh, is is making me feel a little sick to my stomach. <laughs> but let's let's move it along for this juicy ass interview. But first, let's take care of some housekeeping. So, first of all. Uh, You guys, this Saturday is the first episode of Shit Show Saturday. So this is the second weekly episode that I'm going to be doing. This is where you're going to get to hear the stories of your fellow shit show listeners. So super excited for that. This first episode will be with Scott, my boy Scott, from the Patreon. Uh, So check that shit out. Second, this Sunday is adult child's first episode virtual workshop. It is with Sarah Mishu. It is called Leaving Crazy Town. And we are talking about codependency thoughts and feelings and how the hell to deal with them. General admission is sold out. You can still buy uh, the replay. So that's 15 bucks. So check out the show notes for ways to do that. Patreon is where I host three weekly support groups. It's where I provide you with additional content. And it's your way of saying, hey, Andrea, I think you're the shit. Here's five bucks a month. You guys remember, this is my full-time gig. I need all the help that I can get. So help a girl out. So thank you, thank you, thank you to these stand-up beautiful people. Rachel, Sarah, Karen, Ari, Dana, Linda, Paulina, Ben, Stacy, Paige, Melissa, LaRae, Amy, Melinda, Christine, Julia, Vicky, Caroline, Annie, Mary, Lisa, Keely, Chris, Laura, Corey, Joe, Kara, Leslie, Robin, Kim, Leo, Veronica, Rebecca. I'm going to butcher this. Uh I'll of Tina, I'm sorry. <laughs> Chris and Allison, seriously, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just want to say I feel so fucking honored to be a part of each and every one of y'all's journeys. I hope you know that truly. I just I just feel so grateful and honored to uh, be in your ears for an hour each week. Other ways that you can support me is that you can follow me on TikTok, and Instagram, at Pod, And, of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Do not pass go. If you have not done that, okay? And now for today's transitionary music, we're going to hear a little bop from My Girl Lucy.
1: I used to lay in bed half dead And half alive One foot on this plane And one on the other side Barely feeling Heart in my chest was hardly beating Then you kissed me and took my hand Your love is
0: like The truth of the matter, my dear shit, shows is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now let me tell you about Dunn. Dunn is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD take a free 1-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24/7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com/podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength.
1: The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop
0: it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew.
1: Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com.
0: This is a real blast from the past, girl. I just want to say that (laughs) I've I've followed you over the past, what is probably 15 years. Yeah. you definitely would not have you would have been an entertaining uh guest to have but probably too much of a hot mess (laughs) until you got shit show, as you would say (laughs) so yeah not a recovering shit show you were just like a straight up shit show so happy to know that you're now a recovering shit show Lucy welcome to the podcast thank you for having me isn't this weird think about it when we were like sitting watching the OC in, in, the, in the dorm room. I think we were watching it literally on probably DVDs Yeah, mm-hmm. that one day we would be sitting here doing this.
1: I love it. I love this for you. I've been listening to your podcast. You're, you're just a, you're a good storyteller. You're funny. I don't know if you've ever done any radio work with your voice. Cause your voice work is really good. Um, i just
0: a natural baby just natural.
1: Yeah. This is your, this is your calling. I love it. And it's inspiring to me because you're like ahead of me sort of in recovery, both from like addiction and sort of just codependency, like all of the things, you know? So like I'm on this path too. I'm, I'm ready to have my big Dr. Drew moment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I was thinking about you and so this is I this is like one memory that I have I remember being in the watching the OC and I remember you talking about (laughs) I remember you talking about I don't know if it was your boyfriend or your pimp or what but about some guy sticking a beer bottle up your ass and I wasn't sure if like, I think I was like, okay, is this real? Or, you know, we kind of went to like a school of some fucked up people where I could see people yeah. making that shit up too. So my first question to you is, did you once have a guy stick a beer bottle up your ass?
1: Oh, yes, I'm sure. I There was a lot of pathological liars at that school. There was a lot of personality disorders, uh, a lot of traumatized children, most of great privilege, you know. There was a lot and I was thrust into that school because my parents didn't know what to do. You know, um, I was 15 years old dating 30 year old drug dealers, pimps, like, and, and my like middle-class parents didn't know how to help me. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, like everything that I talked about was true. And I know that I terrified most of the children, the <laughs> adolescents there, you know, and I really like ostracized myself and, um, but I was just like processing, like I was like frothing over with all of this trauma. And I was in a place where people weren't equipped to help me. And so I was just like, hi, my name is Lucy and I was sex trafficked and I'm only 15 years old and I'm in love with this guy. And like, and and I was, I was ostracizing myself. But I, like I said, I was just frothing over with trying to process it. And I wasn't in a, a place where people knew how to help me.
0: Well, I remember one time I think I was 12 and I told my friend that I had sex and I got pregnant but then <laughs> but then I pooped the baby out. <laughs> <laughs> so i definitely would be somebody that probably would make up having a beer bottle stuck up in my ass if i was willing to make up that i pooped a baby out
1: (laughs) yeah andrea they at least have to be like plausible these
0: lies like why did this friend continue to be my friend after that you know that's even more concerning it's more concerning that she remained my friend that more so than me saying i pooped a baby out
1: (laughs) uh, well, you have other redeeming qualities, you know. Yeah, that, this is true. <laughs> no, I'm proud of it
0: today. Um, so what I don't know is that I don't know about your childhood. I know that you have a twin. Um, so what is your earliest childhood memory?
1: Um, so like my strongest childhood memory, I would say, is I I got type 1 diabetes when I was four years old. Oh, yeah, old. I
0: forgot that you had diabetes. Yep.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um that for me is sort of the beginning of a lot of the mental health stuff, a lot of the self-esteem stuff, a lot of the body image stuff. You know, when you're four years old and you're on this like very regimented diet and everything you eat sort of has like a consequence, you know, inside of your body. Um, and then being an identical twin. when I mean, my identical twin did not get diabetes. She had a very high chance of getting it but she she never did because it's a gene that she carries we both carry but so, something triggered mine to manifest um so my first mem- like my strongest childhood memory is of this feeling of injustice and this feeling that like this is not fair and watching my like the mirror image of myself but with like this freedom this freedom with food this freedom with her body that I did not have
0: yeah and being so young it's impossible for a child to conceptualize to understand that this is just something genetically within me that manifested like a five or a six like can't we can't comprehend that so whether it was conscious or not I'm sure the thought was there's something wrong with me
1: yeah it, it I remember intense rage I was a happy child and then all of a sudden I was a furious child, you know, and diabetes like affects your, your mental health so much, like high blood sugars, basically your body will just shut off all of the functions it doesn't need because it's sick and it's only focusing on that. So it will shut off emotional regulation, emotional management, rationality. And, and when you're first diagnosed, your your blood sugar is high all the time because your parents are still figuring out how to keep it down it's like this huge mess and so some of the rage was probably that my just blood sugar was high all the time you know but um yeah i was i was just an angry kid for a long time after that
0: well i think that anger often you know is masking what's underneath i'm sure that there was shame and also just beat not only were you different than your twin but like you're different than everybody else in school right because i'm assuming you probably were the only kid at school with diabetes
1: I was. And just things like uh, to take a shot, I'd have to go to the bathroom. Like I wasn't allowed to just do that in the lunchroom or in the classroom and things like that gave me, made me really upset. You know, I just, I felt like, okay, yeah. Like, okay, yeah, I'm different. That's how I felt.
0: I'm sure that was an identifier for you as well. Like Lucy with diabetes.
1: Yeah, it definitely was. And it was to other kids too. And there's so many misconceptions about type one diabetes, you know, like kids would, my sister would be like, Hey, can we play? And kids would be like, as long as you're not the one with diabetes, like, I don't want to catch it, you know? And a big one I I got all the time was, Oh, well, my mom says you got diabetes because you ate too much sugar, Mm -hmm. like type one and type two diabetes is, and they're both illnesses that society associates with the fault of the person like, Oh, you have diabetes and you did something wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. So then, okay. So that's kind of your earliest memory. So talk about, you just have your sister, right? Do you have other siblings? Yeah.
1: Okay. No, just my twin. Yeah.
0: What were the, what was the dynamics like within your home? Um, What was the relationship with your parents?
1: We're getting deep, Andrea.
0: (laughs) What we do Yeah.
1: So, (laughs) okay. So. I have an amazing mother um, that was basically my mother and my father. Were they married? No. So, well, yeah, they were married. They divorced when I was like nine months old, though. My father started having dreams and these like Egyptian pharaohs were telling him that he was gay. And my dad has had a lot of prophetic dreams that have come true. And so he felt like he needed to sort of follow this one and see if they were true and so they actually divorced because my father was going to pursue a relationship with a man which I didn't know any of this until our first what were they called at Hyde family at family learning center
0: yeah yeah oh well I was just yes. about to ask you like when yeah when did you learn that yeah this all came out at Hyde prior to that what was the story you had been told it just didn't work out and they um, got
1: divorced yeah I mean My mother has, has told me stories about my father being unkind to her. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that my father is, um, probably has some attachment issues from his own childhood. And, um, I don't, yeah, I don't think he was great to her. You know, I think when she was pregnant with twins, he, um, he felt sort of trapped and at least that is, that is what I've heard, you know, from my mother.
0: How long had they been married, you know?
1: Not long. I think they probably got married when she was pregnant, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't long at all. She bought her own wedding ring. Like, I don't think he was ever really in it, you know? And were Um, they
0: at Berkeley or where were they living?
1: Yeah, this was, this was all in Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: So then did you go back and forth I was,
1: I was mostly just with my mom. I was, my dad was allowed to see us whenever he wanted, but he wasn't really sure he wanted to be a father. And, um, my mother never pressured him to be one, you know?
0: So did you have much of like, how often did, would you see him?
1: Like probably maybe once a week. Um,
0: so I would, I, I would see him. Okay. So your mom was a working mom.
1: Yeah. My mom's an architect, Harvard educated architect. And very, very good one. And, you know, being a twin really affected me, being an identical twin, because when you have two sort of similar things, it is natural for everyone to compare them. And so I, because of my diabetes and like how insulin is sort of a growth hormone, a lot of type one diabetics struggle with their weight. Mm-hmm. I was always the bigger twin. That was a huge part of my identity. And it left me with this feeling that I was, I was the, like, because I was the bigger twin, I was the less lovable twin. And it left me with this feeling that I had to prove that I was worthy of love in my relationships later.
0: So when you say that, because you were the heavier one, do do you feel like, um, when you're saying that, do you feel that way from your, from a perspective of, of your parents that your mom and your dad loved you less because of that?
1: No, I don't, I don't think my parents did. I was actually, my sister was sort of like the lost child. I was the sick one. I was the one with the mental health stuff, you know, like I got most of the attention. Um, this was just more from the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. Cause I was just curious if there was, I mean, it it can even be pretty subtle. Um, but if there were any kind of, you know, like shaming statements or, I mean, even like very mild statements can, greatly impact the kid, you know? Well,
1: I grew up in a family where it was like, as long as you're thin, nothing else matters, you know? And, and everyone in my family has struggled with weight, but there was just this huge sort of undertone of like how important it is to be thin or how everybody wanted to be thin. My mom is very beautiful and curvy and I would see her stand in front of the mirror and criticize herself and say, she wished she had small breasts. She wished she had one of those like athletic bodies. I never saw my mom look in the mirror and say, I look pretty today. That was never modeled to me. And so I had a lot of self-esteem issues. Um, I think I think that is, a, I have great, I have a great mother, but I think, and all parents fail in their ways. And I would say the, my mother's biggest failure was not demonstrating self-esteem to me and positive body image.
0: So then when did you, you know, so you said that you would like rage, you had a lot of anger. When did yeah. you start to act out in other ways?
1: So I went to a very small, I went to a school. I don't know if you're familiar with the Piedmont neighborhood. It's sort of like this little affluent neighborhood. Oakland. Yeah. It's in Oakland, but it's its own town. Yep. So it's very affluent, very rich. So I, I grew up in the Piedmont school district all of the girls were like tiny. It seemed, you know, there was maybe like one fat girl in my whole grade growing up. Like everyone was tiny and I had big thighs and big hips at a really young age. And I just felt so unattractive. I had such low self-esteem. And then my family moved to Berkeley for my eighth grade year. And when I got to the Berkeley public schools, my first day All of the kids were coming up and telling me I was beautiful. I was thick. I'd never heard the word thick before. I thought they were calling me fat. But I realized very shortly that, oh my God, in sort of these more like ethnic places, the beauty paradigm is different. And I felt beautiful for the first time in my life. And when you're in eighth grade and you're like going through puberty and you're starting to like experiment with your own body and sexuality and like, I was getting attention. I was, I was ex- experiencing myself as a sexual person, as a sexual being. And it was like this high, I was like, I felt beautiful for the first time in my life. And I hung out with all the bad kids and I started smoking weed and I dated all the popular guys. And um, yeah, so that's when I started acting out. Eighth grade. Yeah. But I felt like so empowered and I had never been to a school where everyone was smoking weed and having sex. Like it was not like that in Piedmont, you know? And so, yeah, I would definitely say it was, it was eighth grade.
0: What was your relationship like with your sister?
1: She was experiencing the same thing as me as feeling beautiful for the first time, even though she was thinner. Um, it, it was just like, I don't, you know, she still had the big hips and stuff. We're still shaped the same. She was experiencing the same thing. And I was always like the dominant twin So she kind of just followed me around and, and did whatever I did. And I am sure she felt like she was kind of living in my shadow because I have a big personality, you know, she's a little quieter. I have a little more charisma, I would say, (laughs) but yeah, so she was just following me. She was smoking weed with me and just, just following my lead.
0: So you got sent to hide when you were in the 10th grade, right? Yes. So then, okay. So you go to this school, it's eighth grade. So what the hell happened? But you know, between then and 10th grade to where you got sent to hide.
1: Yeah. So ninth grade, we hit Berkeley high. Um, my friends were like all just like the bad girls, you know, and they were all dating older guys, like, you know, like basically pedophiles essentially. And they were drug dealers. And I thought that it was so cool. And I was, I was studying at the Berkeley jazz school. You know, I, I sing, I was walking home from one of my like voice lessons and this 21 year old guy pulled up in a Mustang and asked me for my number. He asked me how old I was. I said, I was 15. He was like, well, you're, you must be almost 16, right? Like look at all that body. And I was like, no, I just turned 15
0: <laughs> as if it's like a big difference. Yeah right. There's no way you're 15. You yeah. gotta be 16. Also, it would be different if it was like, oh, like if he was like, um, uh, you're not 17, you're 18. Like that would make sense that yeah. he want you to be 18, but like 15 to 16, yeah. what the what's the difference, dude? <laughs> <What>? Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: um. Yeah. Red flags. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I gave him my number, and we had sort of like a sexual relationship. And he was definitely not like fully, I was like in love, you know? So one night I was like in his hotel room. He gave me an ecstasy pill.
0: Did he live in a hotel?
1: No, I think he like lived with his mom. He was just in a hotel, like a a motel, a motel (laughs) um, on university. So he, I was like, I can't take that. Like I've never done anything like that. And he's like, here, I'll take half. And um, we split the ecstasy pill. I took it. I completely forgot that I took it. like I was so high. Like I, and um, I don't remember like too much else. This lady came over and put makeup on me. They took pictures of me. They put me on the internet. Um, they told me, like they kind of explained to me like, oh, this we run an escort service. And I was like so high and I was like, okay, but I remember like being terrified you know, but also just super, super high. And so I turned my first trick that night. Um, How did it go down?
0: Like they posted it on the internet right away and then they got a call? Yeah, so
1: it was Redbook, I think, which has been shut down now by the feds. But at the time, yeah, they put me on Redbook. Um, the girl, the lady was answering the calls. She booked it. Um,
0: was it just I, only you,
1: him and her in the hotel? yeah. So um, yeah, he, the guy, it was a really nice guy. My first trick, it was quick. Um,
0: Did he come to the hotel and then the other two just left the room? Yes.
1: And then um, when I came back, they, they took the money. I think it was like $180. They gave me like 60 bucks, told me to like buy some weed and cigarettes and get whatever I wanted.
0: How long had you been quote unquote dating him at this point?
1: I'd say like- Maybe three weeks, four weeks, maybe.
0: Obviously, he's grooming you.
1: Yeah. And then I, like, walked home because I had curfew and I got super lost. Like, I don't know how I ended up in Ohlone Park, like, because I was just so high and probably dissociated, you know. Um, but But I found out very quickly that I got so much more attention from him by doing this, you know, all of a sudden he depended on me for finances and it made me much more like valuable to him. And he was calling me more. He was spending more time with me. And so I kind of just rolled with it. And I think one of your symptoms of adult children was about that was how you would just go to extremes to be loved because of this fear of abandonment. And that's, that's what I was doing. And it got so bad. Like I was a mess. I mean, I wanted to die.
0: Were you going to school every day?
1: Yeah, I was going to school every day. And then he would pick me up and um, we'd make a little money and then I'd go home for a curfew. And it got to the point where, like, I would sl- lay in the hotel room waiting for the trick to show up. And I would just shake and mm. shake and shake and kick. Like, my nervous system was just, you know, in this fight or flight. And like my love for this man somehow just just kept me in sort of freeze. But my nervous system was like, get the fuck out of here. And so I would just shake and kick. And um, yeah, I was incredibly depressed. My parents knew something was wrong. My mom did because I would come home with makeup on and nails. She'd find money on me. And um,
0: did you did anybody know, like, did a, your sister or a friend, did anybody know that this was going on or you didn't tell a soul?
1: Yeah. No, my, my friends knew my sister knew. Yeah, no, I couldn't keep this to myself. You know, I was, I was spilling over.
0: Did you have other friends that were doing that same thing was going on with them?
1: None of my friends, but there were other girls at Berkeley high that were kind of known that they were doing this. So it was in the culture of the school and there is this culture in the Bay area of these older men that prey on these young girls and pimp them. So yeah, no, I definitely wasn't the only one.
0: I wonder it in a way like cuz for me um in the 7th grade me and my friend gave blowjobs to um like two of the guys in high school and we mm-hmm. did it because I thought that that would make me cool. Like that's why mm-hmm. I did that. But it, the end yeah. like the reverse ended up happening. So was there a part of you that like because I could see myself like in that situation, almost like bragging about it or like thinking like did you feel like that gave you a cool factor
1: um it's it it stigmatized me, I would say um to my peers a lot of kids called me a hoe, but people at the, my at Berkeley High called me a hoe before it ever happened, and like because it's kind of the way I dressed, and so it was kind of like, well, everyone's been calling me a hoe anyway, so I might as well just be a hoe. Like I almost felt like maybe it was like my destiny or something or justified it that way.
0: I think that's a form of dissociation. I think too. Cause for me, same thing, like when I, when it backfired on me and I ended up being not cool, but the school slut, like the way that I dealt with that was that I like, I just like, I leaned into it.
1: Yeah. I think so. Um, I, the thing that I cared about was this guy, Anthony, and I felt that this made me more lovable, or that this would prevent him from leaving me. Um, and that was my main goal because I had this fear that I was not worthy of love, you know, and that I grew up with that fear.
0: Were there always drugs involved whenever you were prostituting? Weed, sometimes alcohol,
1: mostly mostly just weed. I hadn't tried like harder drugs yet.
0: that um, he had given you that ecstasy. So I didn't know if he was giving it to you every time. Yeah, no, it wasn't
1: like a an all-the-time thing.
0: And were there any any instances where it got dangerous? Oh, yeah. So he got in the car with this guy. He took me to
1: his house, and then he was like, I'm a pimp, and you're stupid, and you should have never gotten in the car with me. And he beat me up, and then he called Anthony and told him to come pick me up. I got robbed. I had this, like, $1,000 Gucci purse that was, like, I treasured, you know? And, yeah, this guy, um, like, took me to his house or he said we were going to his house and then he like pulled over he strangled me he took my purse my phone and just like dumped me on the side of the road there was a lot of really horrible things that happened to me
0: how much money were were you charging
1: i was young i was beautiful and the fact that i was young and there's so many perverts out there like i was i was making a ton of money and that gave me some sort of like self-esteem too because i was became this like trophy for anthony and i got some weird sort of self-esteem from that
0: did he have any other girls
1: there was one for a time she was not around long um and we would like ride around like with her and her baby in the car and he would drop us both off i think she was 17
0: and did he consider you to be his girlfriend
1: probably not
0: would he tell you that he loved you
1: yeah, he did. At a certain point when I was making all this money and stuff, he did tell me that he loved me. Yeah.
0: And was he continuing to have sex with you? Yes. Ugh, is that like normal? Like what did, would, would a pimp like have sex with his prostitutes?
1: Yeah, it's normal. Um, there's a lot of like boyfriend pimping going on, you know, a lot of men will Pimp, like start with a girlfriend and then sort of talk her into it it's sort of like a status symbol i feel like in in um the bay area for a lot of men to like be pimping you know and it's glorified
0: in a lot of hip hop and yeah and so then in like one night how many tricks would you turn sometimes
1: like three or four i had a curfew you know so i always had to be home by like midnight or something So three or four, maybe, you know, I might make like $500 in a night, 300, maybe. Um, It was
0: a lot of money to Anthony. I'm assuming you were paying or he was paying for your cell phone?
1: No, my mom was paying for my cell phone.
0: But what about the other stuff? Like the person stuff? Like, would she see you come home with expensive items? And would she question you?
1: Yeah, she knew that something was wrong and I was not hiding it very well at all. So- so actually what happened was I was keeping a journal and I was writing about a lot of my experiences with different tricks and my feelings and a lot of suicidal feelings that I was having. And I was writing about like, I want to stop, but Anthony won't love me anymore. And so my mother, this only went on like a month. It it felt like years, like so much happened in a month, you know,
0: in a month from starting to just from when you did it the
1: first time to when I ended up at Hyde. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. My mom, she read my diary. Um, She confronted me. I told her I was going to kill myself. I told her I was just writing a story that it wasn't real. She called Anthony. She told him she was going to call the police. She told him she was going to press charges. I was so depressed that I was crippled. I mean, I think I probably slept for three days. I was depressed to the point of exhaustion and I just slept and my dad showed up too. He would always show up when there was a problem and he was confronting me and I was saying it was all lies and that this wasn't fair. And I don't remember what he said to me, but I looked up at him and I said, and you deserve every single bit of this. And he said to me, Lucy, that's the first honest thing that you have said since I got here. Within a couple of weeks, I was dropped off at Hyde school. I was flown there. And um, for the, the summer program, Summer Challenge, I screamed at her the whole way. I told her I hated her. I told her that that was just a story and that I was somehow being like persecuted unfairly. And then she left me and I sat on my bed in, I think it was Deck House. And I cried and I said, thank you, mommy. Thank you, mommy. Thank you, mommy. Thank you, mommy. Over and over and over again, because I had just gotten in over my head and didn't know how to, to rescue myself. And as much as I was so angry, I had been rescued and I was so grateful.
0: I mean, obviously your parents were just doing the best that they could and they didn't fucking know how to handle a situation. Yeah, like who would? you know, it is a blessing that they sent you because just from a safety perspective, you know, like at least you're not at risk of dying. But then at the same time, you've just experienced all this fucking trauma, huge traumatic event in one month, sexual trauma, abuse, all that stuff. And then you just get sent to a school that's for troubled kids. But they're they're not fucking equipped to handle somebody who just had sexual trauma. Yeah, there was there was nobody
1: qualified. And I was From the second I got there, just verbal diarrhea of everything that I had just been through. I mean, I could not keep it in. I was in so much pain and um, I was very stigmatized at Hyde. A lot of the kids there dated the guys there were terrified of me and I was lonely and I wanted to be loved and I wanted somebody to like hook up with at Hyde and they were just all terrified of me. I mean, these were very affluent kids, as you remember. And this was alien world that I had just visited. And it it was terrifying to them. And then there was, I think, this sort of stigma of like, oh, Lucy's damaged goods. You know, Lucy's had sex with a million guys. Like, she's disgusting. And I never, I never bought any of that. I never felt like I was damaged goods. And you know, this idea we have that a sexual woman is somehow like of less value to society than a pure woman or, you know, the whole virgin complex and all that. I never bought into any of that. I always felt like I was worthy of love. And I don't know where that came from, I guess, because I, I needed it. I mean, your strength will sort of come out when when you need it. I mean, I, I, if I had fed into those feelings, I all, all hope would have been lost for me.
0: Was the word trauma ever brought up when you were at Hyde? I don't think so. Was there any processing of what you had
1: just gone through? Um, in our first like family, like counseling session during the summer program, you know, I, yeah, it all came out and we're in a room with other families. Right. And they're there. Cause like Oh, so-and-so like the, the parents are talking, they're like, so-and-so wasn't doing well in school and was cutting school, you know? And then there's another one like, Oh, well, since so-and-so's dad died, our family has been very depressed and sort of like more common family issues. And then it comes to my family's turn. And I'm like, mom and dad, I have to tell you something. You were right about it all. I was sex trafficked for a month. And it, I, it just all comes out and like, I don't know what the other families were thinking. I don't know. And then the, the people, the, the staff that were facilitating this were like fresh out of college, you know, like thought they were taking a job to just like teach English to like bad kids or something. And here's all of this coming out.
0: God, what I would have
1: done to have been in that room. After that, my parents said, you have to stay at this school. They told me I was just going for a summer program. And after that, they were like, no, nope, you're going to do 10th grade here. And yeah.
0: So I have briefly talked about Hyde in one of my earlier episodes, but how about you describe it?
1: <laughs> okay. um, Hyde was a school, it called itself a character building school. Um, it's character building. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was sort of a school for troubled teens that tried to disguise itself as a college prep school with, um, the philosophy that of honesty, um, you know, there was a bunch honesty, curiosity, humility, and it was a school that used physical accountability as punishments sort of like janitorial work as punishments um harsh workouts physical workouts it was a school that believed we were sort of all a collective consciousness and that if one person failed then we all failed because we were a team so there was a lot of group punishments there wasn't the idea that we were each other's brother's keeper you know we would we were to hold each other accountable And the only way to sort of survive in the school was to start feeding into it because otherwise you'd spend all day, every day doing workouts and cleaning. And you wouldn't, you weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You weren't even allowed to go to school. If they said, if your attitude was not in check, then you were not ready to be a part of the community and you were taken out of the community. The only people that could talk to you were the seniors, um, and the seniors, nobody was allowed to just come to the school their senior year. This You had to earn being a senior. So the seniors were eating all yeah, of this yeah. up it, because they wanted to survive. And it was like a victimized or be victimized. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. as a survival, most of us kind of fed into
0: it. I know you never did. Um, <laughs> well, I was only there for a couple months, though. They would have got you. <laughs> so they had the ethics which were the rules right so it was lying cheating stealing drugs alcohol tobacco sex brothers keeper was where if you knew that somebody had broken an ethic you had to rat them out or if you did not you would get in just as much trouble as yeah. if you had done it yourself and then the other kicker was the spirit of the law not just that you thought but if you had a plan to to if you had yeah. a plan to break a rule but you just didn't go through with it yeah. then you would get in trouble as if you had done
1: it yeah and the thing was that there was this whole idea of keeping your conscience clear and they would put us in the dining hall And the seniors would interrogate us and say, we know what you did, you know, to all of us. And people would start writing down what they did. People would go sit down. There was like a place like if you have a dirty conscience, sit over here. And then somebody that you had a dirty conscience with, like you had done something together, would go sit down and you go, oh, fuck, I'm going to get in trouble for Brothers Keeper because when they would write down what they did, they would say who were involved and then you'd get in more trouble. So then you'd be like, I better go turn myself in because I'll get in less trouble if I do than if somebody else does. And so we'd all just, they'd call it a conscience call. We'd all have these conscience calls and, um, yeah, it was, um, a very sort of manipulative environment.
0: So then when you broke one of these ethics guys, you had to go on this thing called two, four. So the first time I went on two, four, it was a group of kids that had um had gone through the orientation uh with me because you you were there a year before me yeah or you started there a year before me but I think we went into the town it was like the first opportunity we could like go in the town and we met this guy like at a pizza shop who was gonna sell us weed like we got his number and we were arranging that and then fucking this kid Kenny then Kenny I guess for some reason just decided to rat us all out like if somebody else rats you out they just will stick you like in a room and there's like a piece of paper that you have to fill out that has like all the ethics like which ones you broke like where what when who and you would just like write something down you'd be like I smoked a cigarette and then they would like come in the room and they would like look at what you wrote and then they would just like look at you and be like. Keep thinking, you know, yeah. like acting as if they like already know all this other shit. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the first time that I, I think I only did it two times. The second time was when I stole the Benadryl from the faculty. When I was there, you never got into trouble. So, what about your fr- the first year that you were there? Did you? I think I had like a couple of five thirty workouts, and it wasn't even the physical
1: workout. It was the waking up at five thirty in the morning. It was. Like we were exhausted. We never had any free time. Like that extra, like two hours of sleep that you lose, that was big to me. And I was like, okay, I'll behave. Um, and I fell in line pretty quickly. Do you remember what you got in trouble for? No, I don't, I don't remember. Um, I don't think it was anything major, but I knew that I needed help too. That was the part that probably made me sort of just conform Mm -hmm. They were telling, I knew I needed help and and the school was telling me they were going to help me.
0: Yeah, which they weren't. They were not capable yeah. of helping you. Yeah, they were not. <laughs> there was one time, I'm trying to think of like crazy stories. Um, there was one time where these three kids ran away and then they stole power tools from a construction site and then tried to go to the pawn shop to, to mm. sell them. Do you, do you remember that?
1: <laughs> no, but I remember one girl, she... She didn't even run away. I, I think it was during our free time on Sunday. She met some guy in town, some just local like Maine guy, and she had sex with him and got
0: gonorrhea. Um, well, there was another girl that ran away and she got away. Like she she made it all the way back to California. Her boyfriend or somebody bought her a plane ticket there. I know one girl called a cab in the middle of the night.
1: She lived in Boston and she took a cab back to her house in Boston. And she showed up at her mom's house and said, I owe this cab driver, driver like $400. And her mom had to pay it. And there was a couple of kids that ran away. They were in a relationship, Kat and Mark, and they were living in like the homeless shelter, like the local homeless shelter in Maine, um, because they did not want to go back.
0: Well, they would go and find people and like force them back.
1: Yeah, they would do that too. And they would tell the parents, you know, like if they, to cut them off when we would come home for summer or Thanksgiving or whatever, and kids would refuse to go back and, and Hyde would tell the parents, cut them off. And we're like under age, you know, and there was a couple of kids that were just homeless, just living on the streets because Hyde told their parents to cut them off and say, if you don't want to go back, you cannot come home.
0: So there was one time guys where this kid bought all these, um, all these painkillers online uh and had them shipped over. Yeah. Probably when like Silk Road was still around. But um, but so then what resulted from that was the whole school had to go on two four. And so we all had to get up at 5 30 in the morning and we had to go into the gym. And we had to how many kids went to that school? Like a hundred? Yeah, it was a pretty small school. Maybe a hundred, yeah. And then you had the fucking weirdos that were like local kids that weren't troublemakers, and their parents for some reason like sent them to school there as day students. <laughs> so it's weird. Yeah.
1: there was such a, a strange group because Hyde pretended that it was a college prep yeah. school. Yeah, you know, it, it to- basically just told every parent we can fix your child no matter the issue. So some issues were very small, you know, and and um some much larger, and they couldn't really fix any of them. And I know a lot of the kids who were academic achievers could not get into good colleges because I didn't have the AP classes. It didn't have the academic reputation, you know, so it actually was not good for the ones that really wanted to get into those Ivy League schools.
0: So, so back so they had us all do this workout at five 30 in the morning. And what it entailed was us doing 25 jumping jacks all in sync and it took for fucking ever because you would always have the kid on the 25th jumping jack flailing their damn arms (laughs) at the very end we just chart right back over i never knew jumping jacks could be so hard i think it took us an hour Yeah. Um, yeah and so that happened in between the the couple of weeks between thanksgiving and uh christmas like we went back for like a couple weeks but so then when it was to go back to um um and back after christmas like we drove my mom drove me up there and i was just like honest with her i was like i've been drinking and using drugs over the break and i don't i want to go back into rehab and so then we like drove all the way back down to philly and then once i got there i was like no actually i want to go back to the board wide and so then we <laughs> drove up to Maine one more time and then I, when i got up there i was like no i actually want to go to rehab and so then we drove back and then um my Uh, my mom was going to take me to the next day. And then I like quote unquote, like ran away. But all I was doing was like sitting on a bench at like this school near my house. Um, And so eventually I called my mom and then she was driving me to treatment, but I told her that I refused to, Because even though I was underage, you still had to sign yourself in. Like once I was in, I couldn't leave on my own volition, but I had to sign myself in. So then I told my mom, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign in. And so then my psychiatrist told her to take me to the ER to get me committed. And so I spent one night in the psych ward and then somehow, I don't know how the fuck I managed to pull it off, but I somehow convinced my parents and my psychiatrist to let me stay at home.
1: I never knew so I yeah, why you never came back. So you beat the system.
0: <laughs> um so then you were there through 10th and 11th and just 10th and 11th. Oh, okay. So then I guess you must have le- not gone back yeah. after that year I was there. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did and I went back home and I went to Berkeley High School and my my parents were hopeful that it was all behind us.
0: Seems like anybody that I knew that was there has died or seems very, very fucked up.
1: Yeah, there's um a lot of drug overdoses, pornography, um suicides. Yeah, I I can't I can't think of anybody that's like highly successful.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, is there anybody that you know that, yeah, is highly su- successful? I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think there are some who got it together
1: eventually. You know, got into recovery, are doing good things.
0: Would they take people to AA and NA meetings there? I can't remember. Yes,
1: we there was like a serenity group and that I was in, yeah. And we would have AA meetings there and they would take us to outside meetings, yeah. And that's a funny story. So they took us to an outside meeting and it was a, a speaker meeting where people were telling a story. So somebody told their story and then they're like, it was one of those meetings where everybody like you could just come up and tell your story and a bunch, however many people could within that hour and a half or whatever. So this older guy, he tells his story and then he's like, he looks at me. He says, would you like to? And I'm like, sure. So I get up and I tell my whole story of sex trafficking and prostitution and sit back down. And then the next day I get called into Mrs. Bullock. I think she was, she was also in recovery. She was the one that, no, Mrs. Sergeant. I don't remember, but anyway, she calls me into her office. I guess the seniors had told her what happened at the meeting. And she said, do not tell those kinds of stories in an AA meeting with all of these strangers. And I remember feeling so like sad because I'm like, they asked me to tell my story. This is my story. Uh, Am I supposed to be ashamed of this? you know, I don't, I don't know, but I remember that really hurt me and I felt kind of embarrassed.
0: I think more so it's, there's a lot of sick people. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no. And that, and that was, I mean, she Hmm. was right. Once again, I was just in a place where they didn't know how to help me.
0: Okay. So you go
1: back, you come back. I went home and sort of just, I mean, Hyde did not like prepare me for the real world and didn't really address any of my
0: yeah not the real world nothing was addressed all they did was like they kept you safe for two years but that's it that is exactly what they did and also did but also too i think it does more damage i think it fucks up kids even more it took me a
1: long time to look at hide as a traumatic experience but i i do think it was emotionally abusive and um and
0: traumatic you have all of these kids who are clearly troubled, who clearly have not have, have had good upbringings and you're sending them to a place where they're just told that they're bad. Yeah. Like that they're, that they're just bad and yeah. not that they are, you know, neglected or have experienced trauma or abuse or any of that. It's the message is more of the enforcement of you are the problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so the the root of my problem was this self-esteem, you know, and this this fear of abandonment, this fear of yeah. not being loved, and that yep. was never addressed. So when I came home, um it was right back to the same thing. I Fell in love with another guy. I I you know, I was 18. I started stripping. I was escorting again. I was giving this man all of my money.
0: So there's a lot of juicy stuff in there. So you okay, you graduate from high school, and then what's your plan? What do you do? Are you did you apply to college?
1: No, I did not. I was stripping and I was escorting. I got
0: How did you get back into this? How did you become a stripper? Like, how did that come about?
1: I how did I I had like a friend who was like, I really need money. Like, I'm willing to do this. Like, I know you have experience with this. Do you know how to do it? And I was like, fuck it. Let's do it together. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to send you out there alone. And so I like posted our ads and you weren't working in a strip club. I I was, um, that, that came like shortly after. Yeah.
0: Okay. So she she wanted to do some escorting. So you guys, you started doing it. Yeah. And we were doing it together.
1: We'd drive around, we'd go to the calls with each other, make sure we were safe. But I fell in love with another guy, another emotionally available, unavailable man. And, um, I'd give him a little bit of money and all of a sudden he would spend more time with me. And pretty soon I was just giving him all my money and he was married. And like everyone told me that. And I'd ask him and he'd be like, No, I'm not. But like it was so obvious. Like I was so dumb, you know? And like he never spent the night with me. I had my own apartment. He'd come every morning and take my money that I made the night before. And he would never spend any time with me. And so it was just me trying to like make this man love me and pay attention to me again. It was the exact same thing that happened before high. The the thing that happened, I was just learning about this in school. So the thing that happens when a person is traumatized is that they develop both an aversion to and an attraction to that trauma. So the brain will actually store the traumatic memory in the pleasure region of the brain uh, in a way to cope with it. And so, so yes, I was essentially reliving, just got stuck in this loop of this attraction to
0: this trauma. It's repetition compulsion.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and everybody has a sort of uncomfortability that they are the most comfortable in or the most familiar with, you know? And so like people who grow up in really chaotic households learn that chaos is connection and become comfortable in that. And I sort of became comfortable in this sort of pimp, pimp and hoe relationship because it was a sort of uncomfortability that was familiar to me.
0: What's your drug use and drinking like during this time period?
1: It was mostly just Coke. It was tons and tons
0: of Coke, but
1: I have really bad anxiety. And so Coke would make it so much worse. Like I spent years doing Coke, even though it made me miserable and freaked me out so bad. And so um, I started, I started dating another guy when I was like 22, 23. And we were just doing a bunch of Coke and I was like, Totally wigged out. And he like pulls out some heroin. And I'm just like, I'm crashing from the Coke. And I'm like, will that make me feel better? And he's like, Yeah, I just do it when I'm like coming down from the Coke. And I was like, fuck yeah, let me try some of that. And I I snorted the heroin and just completely calmed down and felt so much better. And so then for a while, it was Coke and heroin mix in the bay. We call it Belushi.
0: So I had another podcast guest sit tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So it was Bellucci, and then the Bellucci got darker and darker until I was I was just doing heroin.
0: How fast after trying heroin were you doing just heroin? Um, within a few months,
1: it was just heroin. And I never wanted to do coke ever. Coke, I would do as like sort of a weight loss thing, like to like maintain my weight. But me and heroin, I tried heroin and That was it. And I remember saying to my therapist at the time, I said, I know where this is going to lead me, but I don't care. I love it.
0: Well, that wraps up today's episode. Boy, did I guys, I left you on a little cliffy there, (laughs) a little cliffhanger. Next week is just as juicy and good, and um, you're welcome. I know you heard something that you can relate to, and thanks so much to Lucy for being so fucking raw and vulnerable with us all. Um, again, so grateful that our that our paths crossed at this crazy boarding school in Maine. Uh, so next week, you know what's coming up uh, this week, and you're going to get the first episode of, of Shit So Saturday, and looking forward to seeing you guys at the workshop as well. What else? I don't know. Just join the damn Patreon, guys. I It still does not cover all of my rent. I need all the help that I can get. I would much prefer to be supported by you guys than have to get external sponsors. So patreon.com slash uh, hit a girl up, email me, DM me. You can email me at andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. You can DM me on on the Instagram. Um, and I am going to see you guys next week for another amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super hot. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. hold on
1: to, just let, let it all go. go, what's making you slow now,
0: just let it